Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, so what is the, why, are we, why are we going back in time? Jack, do you know? No. No? Do you know, Katie? Hannah, do you know? And the reason we're going back in time is they lumped the longer books together, called them the major prophets, and then they lumped the, 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 the lesser prophets. They called their shorter. But I'm actually not sure that Hosea is shorter than Daniel. It's a, I think it's kind of an artificial distinction. But that's why we're going back in time. The, the prophets aren't in consecutive order, especially, you know? And that's all. So thank you very much. Now, putting this together is a bigger challenge than that. So we're going back to Hosea, and uh, Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. They, they, thanks so much. Thank you. They, um, they prophesied at about the same time, but in different locations, because Isaiah is primarily occupied with what of the two nations? Which of them? He's, he's, a, he's with, well, he's preoccupied with Israel as a, all told, but he's to Judah rather than Israel, which is also called by other names. In, in Hosea, um, Israel is often referred to as Ephraim. They, they uh, speak of Ephraim throughout Hosea. Hosea speaks of Ephraim, and he's, he's, it's God's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, he, he'll say, you Ephraim and you Judah. And it's the, because I don't, I, I at one time probably knew why Ephraim was often used, taken for the whole, but uh, I can't remember why, um, why it is so, but that's often used in scripture, Ephraim for the northern kingdom. So Isaiah is speaking to Judah and living in Judah, we don't know for certain, but we think that Hosea was living in the northern kingdom and largely prophesying to the northern kingdom rather than to the southern kingdom. However, that's just a general statement. Actually, if you read through the book of of Hosea. How many of you read it this week? Did any of you? Thank you for that. You notice that he speaks often about Judah, right? And he actually says it at points like, and you're going to get yours, Judah. You know, you have been, but it's like I'm dealing with Jack and his younger brother is also here and has been involved with him in some bad stuff. But Jack has been worse and I'm saying, Jack, you're getting it and you too are, are one day going. I'm trying to think of your younger brother. Drew, Drew, Drew yeah. And you too, Drew, yeah. Ezra, that's right. <laughs> How many of you struggle to keep kids' names straight in the church? And 
I mean, I find myself, I'm so ashamed at times of like saying to Britta, you're Britta, right? The last week, like I did, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure she's Britta, but I know there's at least a 20% chance I have it wrong, you know? <laughs> and so I should have just gone with it because she'd have thought, oh, he really knows me. <laughs> so Hosea is from the Northern Kingdom. The book begins and it introduces him as Hosea, son of Beeri. And, uh, and that's about all it tells us. It also tells us when he prophesied, and it puts it in the reign of four northern kings, or, and, uh, or, or excuse me, four southern kings, and one king of the north. The king of the, the north that is mentioned is Jeroboam. We think it's Jeroboam II. And the, the four southern kings are Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So you remember last week with Daniel, it's already fallen and Jeconiah, the last of the kings, has been taken into captivity with Daniel. And he's, he's actually coming to the close of the era of captivity and recognizing that the 70 years are up. And so there's about 170 years, we think, between the birth of the two prophets and their ministries. But it's, it takes almost two two centuries, a little less than that, for God's judgment to be visited on the southern kingdom. So the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of these. And the first thing we're told is that he's to do something that everyone has wondered about ever since. It's one of those passages in the Bible that people say, oh, we can't really take that literally, okay? And what is the command of God, the very first thing he says to Hosea? Yeah, okay, go take a harlot and a, uh, a wife of harlotry and have children with her. And uh, a wife of harlotry, which must mean that she is a harlot. Calvin says certainly no prophet would have actually been commanded to do this, and this is then, um, this is a, a metaphor rather than an actual marriage, right? Uh, I'm reading E.J. Young, who's a, a famous um, reformed conservative on this, and, and let me read to you what he says. Um, throughout the first three chapters of the prophecy, there runs a tender strain of sadness. Christian commentators, therefore, have paused to reflect upon the pre precise meaning of the prophecy. According to some devout students of the scriptures, we are to understand these things as actually having taken place. Hosea did, therefore, according to this interpretation, actually marry a woman who was an adulteress, and she bore him children which might bear the terrible name, children of whoredom. As each child was born, Hosea took the occasion to proclaim to the people the message which God had given him. For example, when his little daughter is born, he calls her Lo Ruhama. I'm going to skip. There is much to be said in defense of this literal interpretation. For one thing, the prophecy reads a straightforward narrative. At first sight, we receive the impression that these things are to be understood as actually having taken place. It's perfectly understandable, then, that many Christian expositors would regard the literal, inter literal interpretation at this point as correct. 
As one reflects further upon the passage, however, questions begin to arise in the mind, and the questions are so arresting and compelling in nature that they cannot lightly be brushed aside. For one thing, if Hosea had actually married an adulterous woman, would he not by that, that act <coughs> have destroyed the effectiveness of his ministry? To make the matter plainer, when a present-day minister of the gospel becomes entangled with a woman of bad character, do not people look askance at him? Do they not question the sincerity of his profession? So with Hosea, if he had actually married such a woman, would not people have refused to listen to him? This consideration is weighty, and it cannot lightly be brushed aside. Again, would not the time element have destroyed the effectiveness of the prophet's message? A number of months would have elapsed before the birth of the first child. At the birth of this child, the prophet would have spoken his message. Would not its continuity with the message, which was uttered at the time of the prophet's marriage, have been destroyed? So much time would have elapsed that people would have forgotten what Hosea had proclaimed to them at the time of his marriage. Then months must again elapse before the birth of the next child and so on. These are only two of the compelling considerations which have caused many devout students of the Bible to ask whether as a matter of actual fact we're to regard this account as literal. So, I'm not sure it has a great deal to do with the message of Hosea, whether we answer this question, but it does have a great deal to do with our understanding of God and how he works. And so I want to take some time and think about this. You can regard this as a figurative marriage and still get most of the message from Hosea. Um, at least you can get it today, right? Why do I say that? Why do I say at least today you can receive the message of Hosea pretty completely, whether you start regard it as literal or figurative? Do you understand the point I'm making? Well, marriage isn't taken very seriously now. Okay. So it's easy to excuse when you see a lot of the men of God and a lot of people of authority married to questionable women all the time. Okay. And we still receive their authority to some degree. Okay. My boss isn't perfect, you know? Yeah. In that, in that sense, you know? Okay. All right, Ben. Well, I mean, it's part of Scripture. Yeah. So, like, we have that authority. Okay, I'm not making myself clear. A prophecy is always delivered in time, right? And then it echoes on through time, and there are often later fulfillments of the prophecy. It's like skipping a stone, you know? You can skip a stone, and the first skip in the lake, you know, as you throw it, is big and it bounces, but then there are continued reverberations into the future of that stone. And I think prophecy is often like that. So you skip the stone and there's a first target, you know? Have you ever skipped a stone off a rock in, by a lake? You know, like you hit the rock, but then you're hoping it will keep on, like there's a, a rock right there and then you hope it will keep on going in the water. And so this is aimed at a rock. 
But then it, it reverberates to our day. It keeps on bouncing on. I think that's what prophecy is often like. But okay, so understanding that, and I think we do understand that about prophecy, how it has an initial audience often, and then later fulfillments as well. So David, in his psalm, says not one of his bones was broken, speaking about himself, how God had protected him. But in the New Testament, we see that applied to Jesus at the cross. A very specific second meaning to that that's is as specific as the first, but, uh, you know, a thousand years later. Okay, so what, what, given that understanding of prophecy, what's the difficulty of regarding... Uh, what happens in regarding this? Why would I say at least it has meaning for us? It's the same message. Okay. Yes, it's the same message. Amy? Yes. You, well, you're, you're, you're very right, but understand from our frame of view, this is a very powerful, whether you regard it as figurative or literal. But if it has a moment in time that it's addressed at, how does it work as a prophecy if it's not a literal marriage? Am I, am I making sense? That's why I say to us, it seems perfectly okay to take this and say, yeah, it's figurative. But what is the point if it's aimed at that day? How do you prophesy a figurative marriage? Am I making sense? You know, so how, how what, you know, like, <laughs> I have a, a nephew who did something he's still living down 10 years later, and, and on Facebook. All his friends were getting married and he was in college. And so he decided he was going to marry himself, you know, and uh, he he did everything. He played every part and he filmed it and he put it up on Facebook when he was in college. And, and I mean, my father in law, he still looks at that guy out of the corner of his eye, his grandson and like, are you fully sane? <laughs> yeah. And uh, because it was it was such a I mean. People looked at him and said, oh, are you a goof? I mean, you are, you know, and even to this day, he says, I shouldn't have done it. Okay, but imagine Hosea doing a fake marriage. You know, I'm going to, and having a fake wife and a fake, you know, however he does it, it just seems more a joke. All right, I, I'm saying that, but what other things do we know about God that would make us, Weigh in on this in one way or another. Okay, let me begin. What other passages of Bible are unbelievable in what God says or does? Jonah. Jonah. And did, Sarah, was that you? What about Jonah? Okay, every miracle is... Hard to believe. Okay, but let's exclude miracles as a class. Let's say things that would, we would consider scandalous. There's Britta. I was talking about you. I didn't see you here. Okay. Uh, what are the kinds of things that are scandalous 
do we find God doing in Scripture or commanding or, or sovereignly arranging? Yes, I saw a hand over here. Sarah. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely right off the bat. The first thing you should go to. What? <coughs> and the, the killing of the daughter. Who are you thinking of? Jephthah? Yeah, where he made the promise and it was the first. Okay. Everyone know the story? Would you tell it again? So that those who may not know the story, just briefly. I know you can encap. That he was going to sacrifice whatever he saw when he got back home. If God gave him victory. It's, so wasn't he regarded as being faithful? He's, he's mentioned he in, in, in Hebrews as one of the heroes of faith. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and so you have Bob Forney who, who says that didn't really happen. That's just, that's just a, an account. And there are people like that. And I go with my dad who said, look, David, the Bible says it. You don't have reason to treat suddenly just because you're offended by it. What other things are offensive in script? Well, I yeah. And what else does that suggest about the, the w way prophecy works? There's like 390 days, right? You know, you, you know this argument that's being made about the time frame and that it's too long a time frame. But, you know, the first day that Jeremiah is laying on his side, I don't know, okay, what's this Dingledorf doing, you know? By the time 390 days go by and they see it working out, it's going to have some power. And God's prophecies aren't always right in the moment. You know, it takes, am I making? So I, I think that's a great example. And it's an example that counters against that. Any other scandalous things in Scripture that we would consider scandalous? Drew? Okay. That's, that's true. Every sovereign act of God in Scripture could be scandalous. Yeah, Ben. I mean, I think a lot about David's life is scandalous and yet called bold, you know, from the things that he did when he and his, all of his guys were running from Saul. I don't know. Not that God commanded him to do every point in that, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't say, you know, you know, one of the things, yeah, Adrian. This isn't necessarily scandalous, like, go be naked for three years or whatever, but um, when he told Noah to build, a, like, to build an ark in the middle of the desert for hundreds yeah. of you know, hundred years he built this thing, and I think that demonstrates that God often calls his prophets to do unreasonable things in a world that I think would be unreasonable and also super difficult. Super, di yeah. Or, yeah, Jack. Well, I think even with Ecclesiastes, like Solomon, <laughs> We're studying How many of us are going to struggle at points in Ecclesiastes? You know, lots of, yeah, excellent example. You know, and you say, this is the word of God. And then you think that God is bigger than your ability to judge him. You just can't judge God. I was, I was reading something the other day, and I, if I can use this, it really hit me. I was reading in 1 Corinthians where Paul writes, to the Corinthians and he says, you know, um, he said, I came to, to deliver the gospel and not to baptize, which is a great statement against 
baptism saving. You know, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. I only baptize and he names a couple people. And then he says, um, he says, uh, and I didn't, and I didn't baptize. And then he says, oh, and, and, and also this person. But beyond that, I, I don't recall any others. And you say inspiration of scripture that God is giving him the words to write flows through this man who initially writes, I only baptize so-and-so and so-and-so, and then, and then says, oh yeah, and this guy. Was the first statement inspired? You understand? God is bigger than our thinking of him, and we try and tie him down in ways, and he's God, and we don't judge him. I, I, I've come to think that even the idea of inerrancy, that we can prop up everything God said in the Word by facts, dismisses the point that God is God, and we don't sit in judgment. It's not that it's wrong or right, it's God and His Word. And it doesn't need our help. You, you know, and so we come to this. What else is scandalous? Some obvious ones. What about Rahab? Who does she marry? <clears throat> you know, she, she marries, Rahab marries Boaz, who mar who's the, and is the, the mother of whom? Obed, right? And then Jesse and David, and thus in the line of Christ. You know, and Rahab was a prostitute. Or that, that Jesus seems to have been, and it's not Mary of Magdala, but the other Mary, a woman with multiple demons and of bad character, supposedly, prostitute, became one of the closest followers of him. You know, it's, it's wrong. Would we say, it, it, to my mind, it doesn't get God at all to say that God can't redeem a prostitute. You, you, you know, or that a, a minister's life is ruined if, he's, if he marries a prostitute. He no longer has a voice. If God told him to do that. I, anyway, I just, I find the whole thing, I, I'm troubled by it. They're trying to clean up God. And we don't clean up God. He doesn't need our, our, our efforts on his behalf. Am I, am I making sense? Yeah, Mary. Um, you said one of the people commented, this wouldn't be reasonable to do because the people would think um, he is disreputable. We won't listen to him. But God often tells the prophets, I'm going to tell you this, and they are not going to listen, even when it's not something like that. So having... Um, the argument, well, they wouldn't listen, so of course God wouldn't do that. It was a very poor argument because yes. said God is God and then the people to um, be convinced that, oh, okay, if I, if I think that's good, then okay, God, then you can do that. You know? Yes, that's very true. And uh, yeah, Jack. I would say you can even look at it in the other way in that we can wonder sometimes why God chose grace. Sin time and time again, it's like, why don't you just destroy them, you know? But yeah. really, it's like, that's how much he loves us, and we should be destroyed. The, I, I, honestly, wouldn't, isn't it more scandalous in this book that God is willing to forgive and ends it with positive statements than that God commands the prophet to, you know, isn't the scandal, the forgiveness, the acceptance, the love, more than the fact of the sin in this woman. The sin in our lives is a fact. 
And it's evil. The scandal is God's embrace of us. Hosea's a sinner. You know? I think that's a great point, Jack. So, um, but, but, as an aside, let me say, I, I, those who deny inerrancy, believe me, they're worse than anyone that say that God, oh, the scriptures are wrong and stuff. But my, I'm increasingly just saying, I don't sit in judgment. I accept. I don't try and figure it out and say, oh, that's a problem. I just accept. There's a, it's to live by, and I can live by it, and I know it's true. You know, and how it's true, and whether God would let a man forget something and then remember it, or forget other people and say, I, didn't mar- I don't think I ma- baptized anyone beyond that. Yes. I think that's like the same thing with like creation. When we went to the creation museum, mm-hmm. that was one of the things that was like, well, there's a lot of cool stuff there. It was so frustrating because it felt like Christians are working so hard to prove that science is on our side. When it's like, no, the vast majority of science is not on our side. It's just not. They don't want to be on our side. And so it's like striving after the wind to try to prove, oh, science is on our side, science is on our side. Like God does unscientific things all the time. Yeah, it, control. it's accepting the materialistic ethos of our day, which is materialism, that, that all that exists is touchable, feelable, concrete, physical, and, and denying that we are engaged with principalities and powers, that the Holy Spirit, next week, I may not be here, and Matt may be teaching for me. I really want to teach on Joel. But and the offering of the of the the promise of the spirit to all people. But the spirit is a gift beyond any power. And and so and the spirit of God moves as he wants. All right. So let me continue with Hosea and Gomer. Um, Gomer bears children. The first son is Jezreel. Now, here's something. Uh, Jezreel, why? Does anyone remember why the first son is named Jezreel? Jezreel is the name of a city or a town in the, in the northern kingdom. And he's named after a town. It's like naming someone after Sylvania. The first one will be Sylvania or Waco or, you know, something like that. It's like naming the first child Now, World Trade Center, okay? <clears throat> because, yes, yeah, Sharon. Didn't it have something to do with that town that good? <clears throat> well, I don't know that it's about the town, but it's about what happened in the town. And in the town, in Jezreel, was where Jehu went to destroy all the children in the line of which king? Ahab, the wicked, wicked king. And Jehu, who was anointed by God to destroy the line of Ahab, went there and wiped out how many? Like 200 of the descendants of Ahab and family. And, and then he wipes out the king of Israel, who has come up north, you know, to, to befriend Ahab. And, and Jehu is... And so Jehu is allowed for three generations to sit on the throne, his descendants. But then God deals with him because he did not turn aside from the sin of Jeroboam, which was the sin of the golden calves rather than worshiping in Jerusalem. So Jehu rode like thunder 
and was uh, a sword for God. But then God says, because of the sin of Jezreel, I'm going to deal with you. The bloodshed of Jezreel. It says it right in, uh, uh, in because of the, well, look, let me read it. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and gave birth to a son from him. Again, you have the daughter of someone. You, you understand what I'm saying? When do you call a fictitious person the daughter of so-and-so? You, you understand what I'm saying? You just have to go against common reading. So he took her, and she conceived and gave birth to a son for him. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will visit the bloodshed of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. Okay, so Jehu went to Jezreel. If we look at this, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, we don't have the time to go into it. Jehu went to Jezreel and wiped out the, the house of Ahab. But I'm going to visit the bloodshed of Jezreel upon his house, and I will cause the kingdom of the house of Israel to cease. It's commonly understood that he's saying, that for the bloodshed of, Israel, of Jezreel, I'm going to now punish him. But it could be that I'm going to do the same thing to him that I did through him. That what I did through him to the house of Ahab, I'm now going to do to him. Because he has not followed me and his line has failed. The next child that is born is named Lo Ruhama. Lo in Hebrew always is a, it's a, Prefix means not. It's like unforgiven, you know, undone. Un, it's kind of like that means not. And uh, daughter, lo ruhama means not pitied, has not obtained compassion. Son, uh, lo ami means not my people. And God is saying, I have taken a, a, an adulterous people to myself. And so at the end of this, um, Hosea condemns Gomer for her unfaithfulness, saying, Although also I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. And she returns to harlotry in chapter 3. And then later in chapter 3, Hosea buys her back for myself for 15 pieces of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Commands her to stay and not take another man. He will be her man. 3-4. She is to stay with him for many days, seemingly it would appear celibate as a widow without playing the harlot. Following those days, so also I will be to you, she, God says in 3-4, seemingly indicating a resumption of the role of a husband after days of them being together, uh, following her going to return to harlotry. She comes back to him, he buys her back, he says, now we're going to be together and then I will return to being a husband. And those periods of time find an echo in following verses where God says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice of pillar, and without ephod or household idols. In other words, without the, the signs of their relationship to him, without the things that were part of their worship. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So this is a beautiful book. Um, those, that story takes up the first three chapters. The remainder of the book is a series of prophecies. And, uh, and it seems that 
that, that Hosea is alive when that, is this blue? Purple. When that purple line begins, when the Assyrians do it, he is, he is still there when the, the northern kingdom is captured, when they are taken into captivity. It is an incredible book because it goes back and forth and back and forth between great statements. I am going to be a lion to you. I am going to destroy you. And then the very next thing is, but I will have mercy and I will love you and I will bring you to myself. And then again, it goes, I am going to deal with you. And then it comes back again to, but, but I, will, I, will have, I will have mercy. I will, I will repent of my treatment of you. And it's, it's, almost, um, it's almost bipolar and it's, you know, womb, womb, womb. But that is God. He, sh he is shouting at you. But the end of the book, the end of it is what? And, you know, at the end of this book, we're, which is chapter 15, we're certainly looking, or 14, we're certainly looking beyond this period in time, maybe even <coughs> beyond our period in time, right? Not that the book is, exactly chronological, but at the end when it says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all my iniquity and take what is good that we may pay in full the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands, for in you the orphan finds compassion. I will heal. They're turning away from me. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will flourish like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will go forth. His splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will flourish like the vine. His name of remembrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, so let him discern these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. And I, I think this is a word to us, to all of us in our lives, to us as a church, to us as a nation. Take words and go to God. What does it mean to take words and, and return to God? Take words with you and return to the Lord. What does it mean? It means, yeah, talk to him. Be serious with him. How many of you wives are frustrated at times that your husband doesn't talk to you enough? Doesn't communicate well? <laughs> oh, we have a bunch of silent liars here. <laughs> How many of you husbands have said, had your, had your wife say to you, why aren't you talking to me? <laughs> a few more honest guys. <laughs> uh, all right. You know, you know that when you're not talking, you're not really relating.
and that the heartbeat of any marriage is talking together and talking about serious things and talking in real ways. But marriages that are that are. I dated a girl once who said that her parents never, ever fought. I've told this story many times. Never fought. Never fought. The closest they came to a fight was one time when her dad put a dish in the dishwasher and her mother said, it's going to break if you put it there. That's not the right place. And he said, it'll be OK. And I asked her what happened. And he, she said, it broke. <laughs> you know, I, I thought, that's, that's not a marriage. That's not a marriage. It's a mutual accommodation with wealth providing the lubricant for, you know, for life. But it wasn't a marriage. And how many of us are living with God in a way that is really like that marriage? You know, rather than going to him and saying, forgive me, take words with you and return to God. This is what we must do in America. This is what we must do as a church. Take words with us and return to God. He will always forgive. There is always hope with God. He will always be happy to show mercy. It's just, if there's one point that comes out through these prophets, it's that God is always, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is stronger than judgment. Go to God, and despite one of the things that blew my mind a few years ago is to realize that we all say that Abraham, uh, Saul was rejected because of his two sins, the one with offering the sacrifices, the other with the Amalekites' goods. Remember when in battle he kept the goods? And the first he was rejected personally as king, and the second time he sinned like that uh, with the Amalekites, keeping the goods rather than giving them over to God as he'd been told to do. He, he was rejected. His line was rejected, okay? And so we'd say, okay, it's written in concrete. But if you come to the end of his, the story of Saul in like 1 Samuel, at the end of the book, it talks and it gives the reasons that God rejected Saul as king. And it lists three things. First, the offering the sacrifices when he should have waited for Samuel, the priest. Second, this, the taking of the, the keeping of the goods and not keeping and then a third thing and what's the third thing what's that well it's implicit but that's not what he says yeah it's very interesting the third thing he says and for visiting the witch of endor and when did he visit the witch of endor the day before he died what does that indicate God is still looking at him, even the day before he dies and saying, don't do it. Don't do it. There's still mercy. And, and, and for that reason, God said enough. It's like what Nate preached on in the summer of Manasseh. Evil, evil, evil. God sends him into, <clears throat> into punishment. He repents and God relents. This is God. So I, I, I love this book. I think there's so many good things. One of my, the day after my dad died, I was reading in this book and I wrote it in my Bible I had for 30 years. It says, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers 
righteousness on you. And it's saying, look, what you're called to do is to live for God and to be righteous. And he will come and one day shower righteousness on you. In other words, Christ will be your righteousness. You won't have to work on un your unplowed ground, you know, the, the sinful parts of your life. But right now, fight these sins, break up this ground, and then the day is coming when Christ will shower you with perfect righteousness. What a promise. And that's from Hosea. What a great promise. All right. Thank you. It's wonderful being with you. Uh, Mary, would you close us in prayer? Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.